0: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Acorn TV. Acorn TV is brilliant television told brilliantly. From charmingly cozy mysteries to daringly dark dramas. Visit acorn.tv for a 30-day free trial with promo code NPR. Acorn TV. Brilliant. A warning. This episode contains language some may find offensive. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Brittany Luce. Today, we're talking about The Godfather. Widely considered a classic movie, part of the film canon, I watched it for the first time only two years ago, and I was stunned, not only by how great of a film it is, but also by just how influential of a film it is. The drama, the character development, the signature score, it's considered the blueprint for a reason. And while many cinephiles love it, like I do, when it came out, some people hated it. And the people who protested the film might surprise you. Today on the show, we're bringing you part one of a special docu-series called Screening Ourselves from our friends over at NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. In the series, they look at some classic films and explore the complicated relationships between on-screen characters and the communities they're meant to represent. So with that, I'll hand it over to Pop Culture Happy Hour's Aisha Harris.
1: Welcome to a very special weekend edition of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Today, we're kicking off a new documentary series, a trilogy, in fact, brought to you by our host and my dear pal, Aisha Harris. Hello, Aisha. Hey, Linda. Yeah, you've been working on this project for quite a while. It has been not a secret to me, but a secret to the PCHH audience. So (laughs) tell everybody now, there's no more secrets. Break the silence. Yes. So... This is a series that I am calling Screening Ourselves. And, you know, Linda, we've been having a lot of conversations over the last decade or so about representation and misrepresentation in pop culture. And I wanted to sort of look back on how many of these conversations are not new. They've been happening for years and they've changed in some ways and remain the same in Mm -hmm, other ways. mm -hmm. And so the hope was to dig into some film history, bring us some deep dives into three movies that are now considered cinema classics or even cult classics, and explore how they weren't exactly universally loved by the communities they represented when they were initially released. In the series, a couple of movies we're going to discuss are Basic Instinct and The Color Purple. And so that's kind of what I wanted to dig into here. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because you are starting off with a movie that I wouldn't necessarily have thought of as an obvious candidate for this series, but as soon as I heard you were doing it, I was like, oh, of course. You are starting with The Godfather. Yes. And I know I'm, I'm hearing people now like, really? The Godfather? Come on now. But yeah, it, it'll make a little bit more sense as you listen to the episode. So yeah. Well, I can't wait to hear more. Take it away, Aisha. Well, first, let me start by nerding out on the movie itself for the maybe two people listening who have not seen it or haven't seen it in a while. It's really hard for me to single out just one great scene from The Godfather, but if I had to, I'd go with the moment where it becomes clear Al Pacino's Michael Corleone has officially broken bad.
2: They want to have a meeting with me, right? Let's set the meeting.
1: Now, up to this point, Michael, a decorated World War II vet, has made it clear he wants no part in the family business. His father, Vito, played by Marlon Brando, is head of the Corleone Crime Syndicate. And his hothead older brother, Sonny, played by James Caan, is second in command. But now, Beetle lays in a hospital bed after being shot by a rival, and Michael's been beat up by a corrupt cop on that same rival's payroll. Michael is ready to get even.
2: You're going to search me when I first meet them, right? So I can't have a weapon on me then. But if Clemenza can figure a way to have a weapon planted there for me,
3: then I'll kill them both.
1: So I love this scene because it's so understated, yet so effective. Michael, his face swollen from the beating, sits calmly in an armchair, his eyes laser-focused as the camera slowly tracks closer to him. We're drawn in, fully invested in this transformation and the gangster's ethos of doing business. Allow me to borrow from that infamous Martin Scorsese meme when I say, this is cinema. Now look, I'm hardly the first person to point this out. For 50 years, the legacies of Francis Ford Coppola's The Godfather Parts 1 and 2 have loomed large. In movies...
2: Can you respect our conditions? Can you live with the
1: terms that your dons have set forth? Sitcoms... Don't ever go against the family, Jerry. Hip-hop...
4: I watched Godfather, I missed that whole shit. My consciousness was Michael's common sense.
1: Even Muppet culture... So, tell me, old friend... What brings you here to see me? <sighs> I, I have come to ask
5: a favor,
1: Frogfather. Mm. Film critics and audiences have praised it for being this universal tale of ambition, of familial love, a classic immigrant story about the pursuit of the American dream. Godfather 2 changed my life.
3: Godfather Part 2 is the best film ever made.
1: This is how I always saw it anyway. As far back as I can remember, it was the movie that existed in that all-too-rare sweet spot of being both a critical darling and mass cultural obsession. And yet, the global influence of The Godfather and its sequels is complicated. For some Italian-Americans, the franchise is a painful burden of representation. It reinforces the worst kinds of stereotypes.
6: Well, my awareness of it being a thing was that I refused to watch it. I just didn't want to see The Godfather. It just annoyed me, the idea that annoyed me. Are
7: these images legit? And what messages is being sent out about our culture, our people, our history, our culture here in America and in Italy by this movie? It
5: is not a triumph. It is a melodrama, a poorly constructed stereotypical soap opera lurid tale.
1: As a critic, I'm curious about the different ways audiences can respond to the same movie. And in the case of The Godfather, I find one question both fascinating and challenging to consider. How does a beloved movie about white male machismo, one of Hollywood's absolute favorite subjects, also get held up as a stain on Italian-American representation by the very community it was trying to represent? That's the thing about the moving image. It puts us, the audience, in the position of being the viewer and the image in the position of being seen. That dynamic can be potent, and it has the power to make us feel good, bad, or something in between. And this is definitely true when the image is supposed to represent us, or at least some version of us. So what happens when that version of us isn't the one we want to see? And what are the consequences when it seems to eclipse nearly every other facet of our culture? Today, on Screening Ourselves, we'll start with the Godfather and Italian-Americans.
2: She's hysterical. Hysterical, Michael. Is it true? Don't ask me about my business, Kate.
8: Is it true?
7: Don't ask me about my
1: business. No. <laughs> March, nineteen seventy-two. That Corleone. It's the premiere of The Godfather in New York City, and producer Albert Ruddy is laying low in the back of the theater.
2: When I saw the movie, I was stunned. I was with Al Pacino in the back of the theater, and it was an amazing thing that occurred. When the lights came on, everyone got up and walked out. Nobody clapped. It was
1: quiet. I looked at Al, I said, oh, Jesus Christ. Maybe they think it's a disaster. Spoiler alert. Of course it wasn't a disaster.
2: I didn't realize how stunned people were when they they were not prepared for that movie. They were shocked. They were shocked beyond description.
1: Shocked, but in a good way. From there, the positive reactions continued to flow in.
2: When I was driving opening day to my office, I drove by the Paramount Theater Wednesday morning and it was raining. And there was a line... Not around the block in front of the pavilion, all the way down around the next block. As far as you could see, people were waiting to see The Godfather.
1: The movie's budget was around $6 million, and within less than a month, it had grossed more than $26 million. That's the equivalent of more than $180 million in today's dollars. And those are huge numbers when you take into account that the average movie ticket price in 1972 was less than $2. Critics loved it. Vincent Canby's New York Times review observed how the movie managed to be both culturally specific and universally appealing. He wrote this quote: "Mr. Coppola has not denied the character's Italian heritage, and by emphasizing it, he has made a movie that transcends its immediate milieu and genre." Months later, The Godfather was nominated for ten Oscars and won three, including Best Picture. And the winner is
8: <clears throat> Albert S. Ruddy, Godfather. <laughs>
1: And on top of all that, international audiences loved it, too.
2: I took it to China because it wasn't allowed to be screened in China the first time. We ran it in an old theater, 3,000 seats and subtitles on it. Not one person went to the bathroom. And two, in almost three hours, they sat there. And it, they asked me, as a special favor to the Chinese government, you allow us to keep the print for one more day?
1: At the premiere in Sicily... One person was quoted in the press as saying, Marlon Brando is the envy of all the real godfathers on the island. It may have been an instant global smash, but it wasn't an inevitable one. The movie was based on Mario Puzo's best-selling novel that came out in 1969. But at that same time, gangster movies weren't exactly a winning box office formula. And Italian-American communities had some legitimate concerns about the movie, even before anyone had seen it. As production ramped up in New York, Paramount faced opposition from politicians, business people, and civic leaders around the country. They were threatening economic boycotts. And in the hopes of quieting criticism and saving the production from further delays, producer Albert Ruddy had to get the movie's loudest opponents on his side. He met with the Italian-American Civil Rights League and its founder, Joe Colombo, in early 1971. Now, it's worth noting here that Colombo was also the boss of the Colombo crime ring one of the big five syndicates in New York City. And he was a frequent target of the FBI. His thing was to publicly deny the mafia's very existence. That was utterly disingenuous, of course, but you can see how The Godfather might pose a problem for Colombo. It could bring more unwanted attention on him from the government. Here's Albert Reddy again.
2: I said, The Godfather is the story of America, Joe. It's the story of the growth of a family who's striving to fulfill the American dream. I I said, finally, just tell me what you want, Joe. What do you need to make you happy? He says, I'll tell you what I want. Okay, you want to know the truth? I want you to delete the word mafia from the script.
1: After that meeting, the New York Times ran an article with the headline, Godfather Film Won't Mention Mafia. And that was pretty much that. Once Columbo reached an agreement with Albert... Production was free from interference, and the protests mostly disappeared. Some of Colombo's men even got involved with the movie behind the scenes. They befriended the cast and crew. But just because members of the real-life mafia ultimately approved of The Godfather, that doesn't mean every Italian-American was on board. As it morphed into an inescapable global phenomenon, it came to define entire generations of Italian-Americans to the rest of the world, for better and for worse.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from the run through with Vogue. Listen as designers, Vogue editors, and industry icons like Erica Badu and Florence Pugh have in-depth conversations about fashion and culture. New episodes are released each Thursday, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: So I was digging through NPR's radio archives while researching for this episode And I came across this new segment from All Things Considered in 1972.
7: The movie The Godfather, currently acclaimed as this year's most controversial film, opened last Wednesday at the Empire Theater in Kansas City, Missouri. The performance was sold out, but the theater was empty.
8: The Italian-American Unification Council of Greater Kansas City bought all 1,000 tickets for
1: $2,500 so that The Godfather would play to an empty house. This is how the head of the council explained the protest to NPR. We're showing this empty theater
2: for one reason only. It is a dramatization, really, of what we believe is the best way to eliminate cultural prejudice. We hope that
7: the Kansas City people will think when they see the picture.
1: This was a relatively small protest in comparison to the droves of people who saw The Godfather and loved it. But it captured the frustrations of some people within the community. The movie may not have used the word mafia, but it was about the mafia and about the mafia's place as the dominant representation of Italian-American culture. It's helpful to take a step back from The Godfather, though, and try to understand the history of this trope. So let's go back to 19th century in Italy. There's a divide between the North and the South. Many people in southern regions like Sicily lived in extreme poverty and were exploited by the government. And bands of robbers and vigilantes sprung out of these conditions. In Calabria, for instance, these gangs were made up of the sons of exploited peasants and laborers, and they frequently targeted wealthy officials.
8: There's an attitude toward uh, the state and all of its institutions, which is one which ranges from caution to absolute distrust.
1: That scholar Richard Gambino, speaking with All Things Considered for its multi-part series on the Italian-American image in 1974. That was the same year The Godfather Part II was released.
8: And again, if you look at the history of, of southern Italy, you'll find that there, there is good reason for this. Since most of the state institutions, uh, whatever state they were or happened to be at the time, were interested in exploiting the people of southern Italy, uh, repressing any native movements, particularly political movements, and the history of southern Italy is just filled with rebellions over and over and over again for centuries against all kinds of rulers. Therefore, the, the attitude grew up, which was transported to this country, that the state and its institutions are to be regarded with extreme caution.
1: Now, in the late 1800s, Italians began emigrating in large numbers to the U.S., and a majority of them came from the southern regions. They brought that caution and distrust in government with them, and it led Italian Americans to largely keep to themselves which in turn raised the suspicion of other white Americans, as journalist Bill Tuohy explained.
5: But there are other images haunting Italian-Americans. Predominantly, the picture of the Italian as criminal, the whole mafia Marlon Brando godfather syndrome.
1: It is deeply resented, but Italian-Americans feel almost powerless in trying to stop it while the exact origins of the term mafia are fuzzy, scholars have noted that among Sicilians, it had a different meaning other than the one that's most popular today. According to historian Richard Gambino, Sicilians used mafia to refer to a characteristic ideal of courage, strength, and intelligence. In his 1974 book Blood of My Blood, The Dilemma of the Italian-Americans, Gambino notes a couple of different ways Italian-Americans use the term. Now, when he was growing up in Brooklyn, he heard the word mafioso used to describe someone as good or admirable. In that case, it had nothing to do with criminals or outlaws. Gambino also points out in the book that immigrants did sometimes use the term to refer to criminal organizations back in Sicily. That's the definition other Americans latched onto. The double usage caused confusion, though. Every time Americans heard mafioso, Gambino wrote, they thought the Sicilians were speaking of a member of a secret society. And because of this mafia association, discrimination against Italian-Americans ranged from things like segregation and lower wages to physical violence, including lynchings. Naturally, this anti-Italian sentiment bled into popular culture.
2: I'm going to write my name all over this town with a big letter. Hey, stop him, somebody. Get out of my way, Johnny. I'm going to spit.
1: For example... The 1932 film Scarface, starring Paul Mooney as Tony Camante, a ruthless Italian immigrant and gangster who vows to live and die by the gun. Director Howard Hawks framed the movie as a morality tale with an opening title screed that declares organized crime as an increasing menace to our safety and our liberty. In one scene, a newspaper publisher implores concerned citizens to work together to wipe out the mob. The nativism here is not so subtle.
8: That's the federal law
2: that puts the gun in the same class as drugs and white slavery. Put teeth in the deportation act. These gangsters don't belong in this country. Half of them aren't even citizens.
1: And when the popular TV police drama The Untouchables premiered in 1959, a lot of the criminals were presented as Italian-American.
7: For Elliot Ness, the Joe Bucco case was ended, but the fight against the mafia only beginning.
1: As you'd expect, plenty of Italian-Americans took issue with these kinds of portrayals, In Massachusetts, it was reported that the Order of the Sons of Italy planned to ask the state's mayors to prohibit screenings of Scarface. And Frank Sinatra and others called out the Untouchables until the show's producers eventually agreed to changes. They agreed to include more law-abiding Italian-American characters and stop using Italian surnames for fictional characters. So when production of The Godfather kicked off in 1970, Francis Ford Coppola and his creative team knew what they were up against. It had been Coppola's vision all along to counter stereotypes and make a different kind of gangster pick. As he told Fresh Air's Terry Gross in 2016, he wanted to strive for authenticity.
2: My fear was that, you know, Italians were always a talker like people like uh, the Marx brother, Chico Marx, and there were so many cliches uh related to uh, us as a, as a as the culture of our family that i that i certainly you know and also i knew that uh the italian american didn't speak with an italian accent one of my big arguments with uh, the studio was saying well you know uh, uh, he wouldn't speak with, he would speak with a brooklyn a-
3: accent
7: hey what are you gonna do nice college boy huh they want to get mixed up in the family business? Huh? Now you want to gun down a police captain? Why, because he slapped you in the face a little bit? Huh? What do you think? This is the army where you shoot him a mile away? You got to get up close like this. And bada-bing! You blow their
5: brains all over your nice cyber League suit. Come in. Think-
1: that specificity helps explain why The Godfather stood out from previous depictions of Italian-American life. It's a huge part of the appeal for viewers like Tom Santopietro, the author of the book The Godfather Effect.
5: What the films made me do is appreciate all
1: the more what I had with that sense of family. Tom proudly identifies as a second-generation Italian-American on his father's side, and he grew up in Waterbury, Connecticut in the 60s and 70s. But in the early years of his life, he didn't exactly embrace his Italian heritage. He'd grown up with the images of the smiling, happy-go-lucky Sicilian peasant and Paul Mooney as Scarface, neither of which represented his own upbringing.
5: You are watching unbelievably stereotypical behavior. The heavy accents, Scarface's mother is, you know, from another planet. There's an image, one of his sidekicks is so dumb that he holds the telephone upside down and can't understand why he can't speak to somebody. So, you are laughing at it. You are embarrassed by it. You're still kind of caught up in the story because it's a gangster story.
1: The Godfather, parts one and two, those were different experiences for him.
5: Ten minutes into Godfather two, there's footage of the young Vito Corleone coming to America for the first time, and he's on the ship as it passes in front of the Statue of Liberty. And all of a sudden, I thought to myself, that's my grandfather. That is Orazio Santo Pietro. 12 years old, not speaking English, 20 lira in his pocket, not knowing anybody, coming to America, and he made my life possible.
4: Come on, son. What is your name? Tuo nome. Vito Andolini from
3: Corleone. Corleone.
4: Vito Corleone.
3: Okay.
2: Over there. X.
1: Those more tender moments were still placed in the middle of an Italian-American gangster movie, though. And that dichotomy can be uneasy to reckon with.
6: Well, my awareness of it being a thing was that I refused to watch it. I just didn't want to see The Godfather. It just annoyed me, the idea that annoyed me.
1: That's Maria Lerino. She's a journalist and the author of the memoir, Were You Always Italian? She was just entering her teenage years when the first Godfather movie premiered, but she'd already been subjected to anti-Italian discrimination by then.
6: And in school, there also was this kind of continuing prejudice against Italian-Americans that came out in different ways. Uh, I had a friend who only referred to me as the smelly Italian girl who stands in line with me in gym
1: class. Maria feels proud to be Italian-American now, but unlike Tom Santopietro, she didn't come to that acceptance because of The Godfather, but in spite of it. She didn't see the movie when it came out, but its influence loomed so large she couldn't escape it. If you weren't a Mafia Don, you were a dimwit. You know, so, uh, you know, in high school, I remember uh,
6: shows like Welcome Back, Hotter with John Travolta. It's a Vinnie Barbarino look, okay? Your hair, for instance, very casual. It should look like it's being blown by unseen winds. <laughs> so those two stereotypes, the Mafia Don and the uh, really dumb Italian kid, I-, I felt that very
1: strongly in high school. She didn't actually see The Godfather until she was in her 30s, at the urging of her husband. Her reaction was mixed. I knew that it was a great
6: movie. I mean, that had many great elements to it. It Such compelling characters, and a a tragedy, and, you know, a a lush score, beautiful images. It touched also upon many period details of Italian-American life, like the wedding, the sort of the sumptuous scene of the food and the plates. But at the same time, it perpetuated and is about the, the worst stereotype of Italian-Americans. So, you know, the first line of The Godfather.
2: Why did you go to the police? Why didn't you come to me first?
6: It was also tapping into a lot of that, especially when the movie came out, that sort of anti-trust you know, of, of government. And so there were so many things about him and about the story that were so much larger than the Mafia story, but using that element of the Mafia. So that's what makes it so hard. It's the shadow.
1: It's this perpetuation of the stereotype that has plagued us for generations. That shadow is so long that this year the movie was back in theaters for its 50th anniversary, and there was a miniseries about the making of the movie called The Offer.
6: It's not about a gang. It's about a gangster's family. Mm -hmm.
1: But despite the commemorations, for other Italian-Americans, there's still no wiggle room and no caveats when it comes to forgiving The Godfather.
5: It is not a triumph. It is a melodrama, a poorly constructed, stereotypical, soap opera, lurid tale. As a filmgoer, it, it, it seems so outlandish.
1: That's Rosario Iaconis, an author and adjunct professor at Suffolk Community College. In 2020, he contributed to an article for Italics magazine, co-authored by Bill Dalcero, a journalist who covers Italian-American culture. It's called The Godfather Legacy, Assessing the Damage, and it's a 4,000-plus word takedown. Here's Bill Dalcero.
7: Whenever I tell anyone I'm Italian-American, doesn't matter their educational level, oh, do you know the mafia? Don't you love The Godfather? That's all I get. It's not a, I'm not being called names, but my entire culture is being summed up by an image that I consider defamatory.
1: At one point during our conversation, Bill held up a sheet of paper with a picture of a piece of tiramisu.
7: You've heard of pie charts? I have a tiramisu chart. People like tiramisu, right? So this represents all of Italian America, right?
1: He drew a tiny sliver of a line on part of the tiramisu to represent a small, unspecified percentage of crimes that have been attributed to Italian-Americans.
7: This is the part that Hollywood focuses on. They focus on this little sliver, this little crumb in the tiramisu, and they don't look at the bigger picture. What Puzo and Coppola did was a sleight of hand. They took all these positives of Italian culture, you know, the loving image of the Italian, no the grandfather, Don Vito Corleone, uh, the family get-togethers, the affection. I have one this is to the song. No, Michael. They took all of that stuff that you identify as a legitimately Italian culture, and they welded it to these family of fictional criminals. So criminality and Italian culture are now, are now one in the American mind. I have but
2: one dream that I can cling to.
1: What I heard from these critics is that the world didn't need another Italian-American gangster movie, no matter how well-made or how involved actual Italian-Americans were with its production. This feels true to me. When I look back on all the movies and TV I consumed as a kid and young adult, There was an abundance of broad Italian-American stereotypes. From Super Mario. It's me, Mario. To Jersey Shore. I got no tan in Italy, so I got a little excited. I went tanning in Jersey, went tanning, went tanning, went tanning, went tanning. I burnt my whole face off. To, yes, so many gangsters. I'm funny how? I mean, funny like I'm a clown, I amuse you. I make you laugh. And there was little else to counter them. These stereotypes on screen may not seem like a big deal, but collectively they can amass a whole lot of cultural influence. After all, movies like The Godfather are made with the masses in mind, not just the audiences they're depicting. So what does it mean when the images you loathe are not only referenced and remixed by others, but fully embraced?
0: The day's top headlines, local stories from your community, your next podcast binge listen. You can have it all in one place, your pocket. Download the
1: NPR app today. In Bill DelCero's article, Against the Godfather, he and his co-author refer to the movie as the single most regressive cultural and political influence on any American ethnic group since The Birth of a Nation. Now, in case your memory of that one film studies class you took in college is a little fuzzy, D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation is a revisionist epic from 1915 touting lost cause mythology. It stars white actors in blackface who play black people freed after the Civil War as lazy, dumb, and rapists. Its influence was so pernicious that it's been credited with helping to resurrect the Ku Klux Klan. So let me be clear. In no way do I buy the argument that The Godfather comes anywhere close to being comparable to the birth of a nation. But it did get me thinking about why an Italian American might feel this way and how it butts up against the fact that, historically speaking, Black people, and more specifically hip hop culture,
3: Love the Godfather. And I think I could make a very uh, strong argument, as I have done on numerous occasions, that the Godfather Part Two is the best film ever made.
1: That's Dr. Todd Boyd, professor of cinema and media studies at the USC School of Cinematic Arts. He's a huge Godfather fan, but don't ask him about part three because he'll claim it doesn't exist. He credits the first two movies with inspiring him to become a film scholar.
3: I saw it in movie theaters. I saw it at a drive-in. So it was not one time. Um, it was multiple times. It was an integral part of my childhood.
1: At USC, he's taught a course on the gangster's ascendance in American popular culture, beginning with the release of The Godfather and its influence on hip-hop and Black culture. Todd sees the appeal as something that's both aspirational and a sort of kinship.
3: It's a world based on illegal activity, so it doesn't operate along the same axis. Um, there's more room for someone to come in because it's not playing by these traditional rules that have been quite exclusionary. So if you want to, you know, represent yourself as entrepreneurial, um, as politically conscious, you know, as being in charge, uh, The Godfather offers all this and it offers it in a very big way. So if you're a rapper and you're trying to communicate to somebody that, you know, you're the man, so to speak. I mean, that's an easy reference because... People know what the Godfather represents. They know what it means to be the Don.
1: This cultural exchange didn't emerge in a vacuum. Throughout history, Italian Americans and Black Americans have been linked. They've often lived and worked alongside one another. And in the early period of Southern Italian immigration, people would derogatively refer to Italians as Black and Black Guineas. Booker T. Washington once remarked that Sicilian farmers in Italy had it worse than the colored farmer in the most backward parts of the southern states of America, which is a bold statement coming from a Black man who was born into slavery and lived through the Reconstruction era and Jim Crow. But that alignment shifted because by the mid-20th century, Italian Americans became effectively white, just like other European ethnic groups. It was an assimilated status that was out of reach for the majority of Black people. But by the time The Godfather came along in 1972, Italian-American identity had shifted again. As the civil rights movement opened doors for Blacks and other minorities, entered the white ethnic revival. This was an era where third- and fourth-generation descendants of European immigrants suddenly became interested in reconnecting with their roots in Ireland, Italy, Germany, and so on. Historian Matthew Fry Jacobson wrote about this in depth in his book, Roots Two, White Ethnic Revival in a Post-Civil Rights America. Here he is discussing it on a 2018 episode of the podcast, The Dig, from Jacobin Magazine.
0: So in the mid-60s and after um, a lot of the white ethnics, um, they seize on the model that is, uh, that is available now in the civil rights era, the model of, of um, African-Americans um, articulating a new kind of group standing in American uh, political culture. Um, so white ethnic sees that and start to advance a kind of particularistic um, group identity based on their Italianness or their Jewishness or their Irishness that at once um, kind of uh, it can become a language for a particular grievance. Um, it can become a language for the disavowal of white privilege.
1: Jacobson explains how white America moved away from seeing itself as a melting pot, a place where individual identities of white immigrants were flattened and toward celebrating itself as a mosaic. White identity politics was now prominent in the culture. And back then, this created tensions with people of color that still resonate today. For example, if you follow the arguments over reclaiming Columbus Day as Indigenous People's Day, you know what I'm talking about. And apparently, so do The Sopranos. They want to paint Columbus as a slave trader instead of an explorer.
2: You gotta admit, they did get massacred, the Indians.
1: It's not like we didn't give them a bunch of to make up for that. Land, reservations, and now they got the casinos. As did Spike Lee.
3: Gold teeth, gold chain-wearing fried
1: chicken and biscuit-eating monkey,
3: ate baboon, big thigh.
1: fast. Basically, white people becoming proud about their heritage often comes at the expense of other minority communities. White pride can sow prejudice. Nevertheless, for some Black people, The Godfather is also their story. It's aspirational in part because of a shared history with Italian-Americans, of discrimination, classism, and a distrust of government authorities. And for some Italian-Americans, The Godfather is an albatross, which can in turn wind up making them feel as though they share the same lowly rung on America's social hierarchy with Black people and other ethnic minorities. Here's Todd Boyd again.
3: Various ethnic groups who have come to America from white nations throughout the world have often found that one of the quickest ways to being accepted as a white American citizen is to engage in racism against Black people. That is a very American thing. You know, as much as I love The Godfather and Godfather Part Two, Superfly, these are film. This is fiction. Um, real life and fiction align in certain ways, and there are other ways where they don't align. And so I think you have to keep that at the forefront of your mind.
1: Fiction versus real life. Todd's right about being able to distinguish between the two. But the truth is, movies can be so powerful in part because they reinforce aspects of real life— And when you see the same thing repeated over and over, it can become real in maybe not the best ways. The Godfather reinvigorated the gangster genre for new generations of audiences of all ethnicities and races. But does it deserve all the blame? So now I'm wondering, is the beef with The Godfather with Mario Puzo and Francis Ford Coppola? Or is it with Hollywood and America, two giant institutions that never saw a trope they didn't want to hammer into the ground?
3: It was a glorious time. The wise guys were all over the place. I'm your older brother, Mike, and I was stepped over.
7: On the boat, it's bootlegging. On Lakeshore Drive, it's hospitality. (laughs) Let's
5: see if we agree on
2: the terms. The choice now is I get my ass kicked or... Option B, I kick your ass and collect the 200
7: And if you thought a guy like me can't get to a guy like you, guess what? You're thought wrong. Just
2: when I thought I was out,
7: they pulled me
2: back
5: in. <laughs> <laughs> huh? Zeppuccino,
1: Obviously, I'm not Italian-American, but I can empathize with those who protested The Godfather upon its initial release, knowing the deep history of anti-Italian sentiment in this country. And I definitely get how, after all these years, in some ways, their worst fears were realized. The movie maintains a stranglehold on the cultural imagination, whether it's on film school syllabi, in the many, many books and docs, and yes, even podcasts like this one that have been made about it. An early episode of The Sopranos illustrates this conundrum kind of perfectly. It's a dinner table scene where Dr. Melfi's ex-husband, Richard, is complaining about her patient, Tony Soprano, with some additional commentary from their son, Jason. People like him
2: are the reason Italian-Americans have such a bad image. I agree. Ask any American to describe an Italian-American in this country. Invariably he's going to reference The Godfather, Goodfellas. Good movies. And the
5: rest are going to mention pizza. Good movies to eat pizza by. Stop it, Jason.
1: Even someone like Tom Santopietro, who learned to be proud of his heritage because of The Godfather, can't deny that the movie's overpowering hold on the cultural imagination writ large leave something to be desired.
5: I think it's a real mixed bag. You have, on the one hand, very interesting, uh, well-made films from everybody from Martin Scorsese uh, to a film like Donnie Brasco. And yet, at the same time, you have films that are still trading in the stereotypes. And... You know, a film that people may remember called My Blue Heaven, with Steve Martin playing a a gangster. It's just, it's cringeworthy. Thanksgiving is very big in Sicily,
2: on account of the large number of Sicilians who went to America and then got thrown back out.
5: All of the Italians in the film are loud. They (laughs) <laughs> they're overwhelming, their hands are flying all the time. And the only person who's, you know, speaks in a modulated tone and you would want to ever speak to is, of course, the waspy FBI agent.
1: But even as popular as The Godfather remains to this day, it's not like the gangster genre is thriving as it did throughout the 80s and 90s. The recent prequel to The Sopranos, called The Many Saints of Newark, got tepid reviews and came and went with little fanfare. And Martin Scorsese's 2019 Netflix movie, The Irishman, may have been a critical success, but it was also essentially an elegy for the gangster movie. All three of its stars, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, and Joe Pesci, were in their 70s when the movie was filmed. And it seems worth noting that within the last year, many of their peers from Hollywood's gangster epics have passed away, including Ray Liotta, Paul Servino, and James Caan, who was not Italian, but come on, he was Sonny. At the same time, while the mafia definitely still exists in real life, organized crime doesn't make headlines like it used to. The genre is kind of a fossil at this point, but has anything of note stepped into its fading place? Here's Maria Loreno again.
6: I remember years ago, I wrote an article for the New York Times Arts and Leisure section about how Italians were portrayed in television. The only semi you know, non—it wasn't stereotypic of Italians, but it wasn't Italian at all. It was everybody loves Ray, Ray Romano, and I remember talking to the executive producer at the time, asking him um, if they thought about because they did an episode about Ray going back to Italy, but it felt very, very non-ethnic. And he said, "Oh, we purposely." did not put ethnicity in this show at all. And in fact, when we started this show, CBS said to us they wanted the cast populated with non-ethnic ethnics. (laughs) And I said, what's a non-ethnic ethnic? ethnic?" And he said, well, the way I interpreted it was people from New York, but they didn't seem too Italian or too Jewish.
1: That's another paradox Italian-Americans have faced, being simultaneously seen but not seen. The historian Matthew Fry Jacobson observed how in the 20th century, Hollywood borrowed popular imagery from photographers like Jacob Reese to create a universal language for the mythology of the so-called immigrant experience. Think ships arriving at Ellis Island, crowded tenement buildings, and densely packed ghetto streets where livestock roamed freely. In movies like The Godfather Part II, Ragtime, these images exported a generic brand of white European immigrant even when the characters were established as being a specific ethnicity. That bodes well for a movie having wide appeal. For instance, a Jewish-American viewer can see themselves in the Corleone family, but in its own way, it can erase what makes those experiences distinctive to each community. When I asked Maria if there were any films or TV shows about Italian-American life that she liked, she pointed me to the 1989 rom-com True Love. It was directed by Nancy Savoca and is the rare movie explicitly about Italian American life that doesn't involve the mafia or buffoonish characters.
3: The bride and the groom ain't supposed to see each other
5: on the night of the bachelor party. Yeah, what's the big deal?
6: He wants and it to. was a look at families and the craziness of the Italian-American family. That was just done very lovingly, and it was very funny. Like, there were these two characters, these silly names like Dibby and Scabby or something like that. And they you couldn't seat them together at the wedding. And so someone said, well, why, why can't you, you seat them together? And the woman looked at her and said, because of the provolone. And it was like only an Italian-American would like have a fight over a smelly cheese, right? It's like the provolone. You can't see them together because it was a provolone. And that's a movie I wish more people had
1: seen. I think it's a wonderful movie. It's the kind of movie she and others would like to see more of. And that's what it really seems to come down to anytime we're talking about underrepresentation or misrepresentation in art. Yes, it's about being seen, but also in a variety of ways. A balance. Okay, so I can't lie. I still think The Godfather Parts 1 and 2 are among the greatest movies ever made. A brave declaration, I know. But if anything stands as unassailable proof that there's no such thing as universal acclaim, it's these movies. Critiques of representation in pop culture didn't just all of a sudden become a thing in the last 10 or 15 years, and it's never just been people of color and other minorities voicing those critiques. Just like the idea of the American Dream... The Fear of Harmful Stereotypes is a Tale as Old as Time. Next time on Screening Ourselves, we revisit Basic Instinct, the 90s cult classic that sparked outrage over a queer femme fatale. This episode was written by me, Aisha Harris, and produced by Mike Katzoff and Candace Lim. Bilal Qureshi is our editor. Thanks to Mary Glendening and Jane Gilvin for their research support, and to Stu Rushfield for engineering this episode. Some of the music you heard is by Ramteen Arablouei. Special thanks to Cindy Madden, Lauren Magaki, Mito Habe Evans, Jessica Reedy, Lauren Gonzalez, Adelina Lancianese, Arjun Hutchins, Louise Treyes, David West Jr., Dustin DeSoto, Megan Kane, Micah Ratner, Emily Bogle, Brendan Crump, Michelle Martin, and Neil Carruth. Thanks also to James Reagan, Michael Shores, Brandon Schenk, Alexandra Ruddy, and Annie Chelsea. Our Senior Director is Beth Donovan, and our VP of Programming is Anya Brunman. I'm Aisha Harris, and this is Screening Ourselves, a special series from NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Thanks again to Aisha Harris
0: and the good folks at Pop Culture Happy Hour. Additional production and editing on this episode came from Liam McBain and Jessica Placik. Engineering support came from Kwasi Lee. If you want to hear more of the series Screening Ourselves, head over to the Pop Culture Happy Hour podcast to dive into issues of representation on basic instinct and the color purple. I'm Brittany Luce. All right, that's our show today. Thank you so much for listening and have a happy Thanksgiving. We'll be back on Friday.
1: This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the Did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop.
0: Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at Shopify.com slash NPR.
4: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Mass Mutual. The Financial Educators Council says 39% of Americans don't have someone to go to for financial advice, but you can plan for the short and long term with someone backed by 170 years of financial expertise at MassMutual.com.
0: Is it possible to engineer our way out of the climate crisis? Some entrepreneurs want to shoot particles into the stratosphere to combat global warming. Experts say regulations on this technology aren't keeping up. The world of solar geoengineering on the latest episode of the Sunday Story from NPR's Up First podcast.